1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Hello everyone, Ron Spomer with Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast and it's time for more questions and answers. I hope we've got some good ones this time. We usually do. You guys do a great job of putting me on the spot. Here's one from Austin. Austin asks, has hunting become a rich man's game? Hmm. How is the average blue-collar worker supposed to get back into hunting with all the fees and the lack of opportunities? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Oh, boy. Get ready, Austin. You're about to hear them. First of all, the average blue-collar worker cost me an arm and a leg when he came out to fix my plumbing the other day. (laughs) These guys are doing pretty well for themselves. If I had a son right now or a daughter, I think I would tell him to go into uh, plumbing or electrical work or carpentry or something because it's getting hard to find people. They're so busy. At any rate, that doesn't have anything to do with hunting other than who can afford it. Has it become a rich man's game? Gosh, I'm afraid it has to a degree. I'm going to go back to when I was a lad, which was not very long ago, (laughs) 1960s, 1970s. We still had some issues finding places to hunt back then. But by and large, at least in a rural state like South Dakota, you could knock on doors and say, hey, Mr. Farmer, Mr. Rancher, any chance we could go hunting on your place for pheasants or ducks or even deer? And we would get the nod. Now and then someone would say, gosh, boys, I'd like to let you, but I've got this cousin and he's got some wealthy friends and they all give me some money to save it for them when they come out, you know, but after they're done hunting, you're sure welcome, that sort of thing. But we could see the potential creeping in because year by year, more and more times you would hear that we've leased it out to somebody, but we really didn't have much for outfitters and guides working in, at least not in South Dakota. And we could get as many as eight deer tags a year because they were portioned out by districts and or refuges and places where they had to do control work. So you could get a a tag for an archery statewide. You could apply for a West River Deer license or an East River Deer license. And you could get a Sand Lake National Wildlife Refuge. You could hunt on the Lower Brule Reservation or the Cheyenne Reservation, whatever ones had licenses available, it was absolute hunter's paradise. But the best part was just going to the local farmer, knocking on his door and asking if you could hunt pheasants and getting permission to do it. No fee. Wow. But then back then, everyone was pretty much in the same boat. You know, none of us were what you would call independently wealthy. 
We were all working, either farmers or working for some sort of small town business that was supported by the farm and uh, the economy around there was all agriculture. So you were all pretty much in the same boat and you shared the pleasures of a rural lifestyle. We knew we didn't have all the things that a lot of folks in the cities had, but by golly, we had the country and we had wildlife and we had the opportunity to hunt and fish. So we didn't try to uh, charge other people for the pleasure. These days, things have changed and changed quite a bit, radically, really, because so many farmers have gone out of business. What with price controls and the weather and all these other things, it's just so hard to stay in business running a farm of any reasonable size. You've got to have huge acreage in order to turn a profit. So as a result, a lot of different Big companies have bought a lot of land. I think some of the biggest landowners in the Midwest grain producing countries are uh, manufacturers of some agricultural products or chemicals or pesticides and that sort of thing. Um, you, you just always are surprised when you hear who owns land. And then in the woods, you hear there are different companies that are are cutting timber that have timberlands that used to be open for deer hunting. And they're starting to shut those down partly over lawsuits, over injuries and such things. You know how it goes in this country anymore. It's just difficult to let anybody do anything without signing all sorts of legal forms and papers and whatnot all. But another big contributing factor are the outfitters and guides. And I'm not running guides and outfitters down because I have benefited from their services many, many times. They know what they're doing and they can really help out if you're busy and you're not living out on the land and you need to go someplace foreign to hunt and you don't know up from down when you get there. Boy, it sure is nice to have a guide who knows the country and can get you in. The downside to it is that they'll move into an area and they will lease the land from various ranchers. And they might end up with five or six big ranches that's, that are completely leased. No one else gets to hunt unless you pay for it. And that's, I think, where your complaint here about it being a rich man's game is coming in. You know, it used to be we figured going to Africa was a rich man's game. But nowadays, it's actually less expensive per animal hunted to go to southern Africa Namibia, South Africa, to a lesser degree, Zimbabwe. But over there, they have so much wildlife. The ranchers have figured out that if they bring wildlife back and cut back on their domestic livestock, they can make more money selling hunts than they can selling straight up meat from their meat animals because they get to sell the meat from the game animals that are hunted. So you go, you pay a big fee, you get guided around, you have a great adventure and you take your photographs, maybe your horns home and the meat is consumed locally. Go to the restaurant, you can buy kudu and ostrich and eland and you name it. Uh, it's a great system. And as a result, their wildlife populations have just soared. There's more native game now on private lands on these hunting farms in South Africa than there are on all the national parks and refuges. So the, the costs then are a lot lower because they need customers to uh, take out those animals and pay those fees to keep them in business. So you can actually go to Africa, including the flight over and back, and it costs less than a moose hunt in Alaska or sometimes even an elk hunt out in the Rocky Mountains. Now on the upside, there are opportunities for low-cost hunts. And I indulge in a lot of these myself. Most of us do. Obviously, out west, you've got millions of acres of U.S. national forests and BLM lands and a few other 
like Army Corps of Engineers properties and state-owned lands and such that are open for hunting. A lot of these at the state level are for small game birds and waterfowl, but they also have some deer and elk on them. But the forests, man, that's elk country, moose country, all the big game up in the national forests. You own that property, my friend, (laughs) and so do I. Um, And we have the right, if we get the tag, to go hunting on there. So it does not have to cost you an arm and a leg. And you don't have to be an uber wealthy individual to do it. It does take a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Maybe not blood, but certainly sweat and sometimes tears because it's a lot of work. You've got to get out there and scour the country and uh, hump the hills. And some of this is steep and big and it takes a lot of work. But I was doing a lot of that solo backpack hunting back in the 80s and 90s. And man, it can be pretty satisfying and pretty productive. So don't give up. I think we are always going to have good public land hunting opportunities in this country, so long as we hunters make the politicians toe the lines. And I've got to hand it to the state fish and game agencies. They are doing a good job to great job of finding more opportunities for public hunting for no fees. And I'm especially thinking of the Midwest states for pheasants and deer and prairie chickens, sharp tails and squirrels and all sorts of things on either state lands that are managed for wildlife, wildlife production areas and game management areas, that sort of thing, but also private lands that are leased just for hunters. They call them walk-in areas, uh, conservation enhancement areas in South Dakota, lots of different little places and programs like that from the states that use hunter dollars to pay the farmers and the ranchers and other landowners to allow us to go onto their property and hunt during the legal seasons with licenses and tags and all the rest. So it takes a little digging, but go to the website of your favorite state or some state that you want to hunt and look into public land and you will be surprised how many millions of acres really are available. So, yes, it's either a rich man's sport or a really determined, hardworking individual's sport. You put in the legwork and you can find some great places to hunt where you don't have to pay a rich man's game. Good question, Austin. This is Rena. Rena asks, what is your opinion on semi-automatics for distance hunting? Does it really make for a worse shooter? And I assume Rena means a, a worse shot or poorer accuracy Um, And this could be taken a couple of ways. One, semi-autos tend to give us the idea that how we can just take a quick shot and then if we miss, we can follow it up with another one or two because they're, they're so quick, just bang, 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 which is, of course, the wrong way to go about it. It's that first shot that's always your best opportunity. The animal is usually unaware and you can take your time until the everything is perfect and make that one perfect shot. Of course, it doesn't always work out that way. And it's nice to have a quick follow-up shot. And obviously, the auto-loaders are going to do that for you. Now, these auto-loading guns, both shotguns and rifles, have been around since around 1900. Browning produced one, and off to the races, Remington had the Model 8, and Winchester had a, a 51 and some others, and Fabrique Nationale had this Belgium auto-loading rifle, same as a Remington, same general patent, but they came on strong and they came on fast. And of course, when World War II hit, our military switched from bold action rifles to auto-loading rifles because the citizenry, the private market had proven that they're pretty reliable. So they started using those. And obviously there's applications there, but for hunting, it doesn't really make you a worse hunter or shooter. 
unless the particular rifle is really inaccurate. Now, autoloaders have never been known for hyper-accuracy. That's always been the realm of bolt actions mainly and some single shots. But with the the advent of the AR-15 rifle, which is sort of a single-firing version, an auto-loading version of the full-automatic military rifle, there has been a lot of work done to make those accurate. You know, initially they weren't all that accurate, but the gunsmiths figured that stuff out pretty quickly. And now those things are as crazy accurate as any accurate bolt action. So you can have a darned accurate auto-loading rifle. So should not be any kind of an issue. And the distance really doesn't matter because you're shooting the same ammunition at the same velocities with the same barrel lengths and all the rest of it. So... I'm just not real excited personally about semi-automatics for hunting just because I don't see an advantage in them. I don't need lots of quick follow-up shots for my style of hunting. Uh, An exception might be a culling operation, especially for feral hogs that are, of course, doing all sorts of damage. And folks are going out and just trying to take out entire herds of those if they can. So it's good training to be a rifleman to take running hogs in an open field. I'll tell you, I've done a little bit of it. And man, that uh, is a good opportunity to have a lot of firepower if you're really trying to reduce that feral hog population. But other than that, I just as soon stick with a single shot or a bold action or even a lever action. I just enjoy the whole process of functioning the guns, working with them. And as I say, one shot, sometimes three if I need some follow-ups. But you work and practice with uh, repeaters of that type and you get more than fast enough. So no, it won't make you a worse shooter to use a semi-auto, but it won't reduce your distance or anything like that. So if that's what appeals to you, go for it. There are some great... Auto-loading rifles out there, and they're darned effective in the hands of someone who knows how to use them. All right, thanks for that question. Here is one from Laughing Dog, and Laughing Dog asks, Is it a myth or is it a fact that Mr. Weatherby killed a Cape Buffalo with the 257 Weatherby? <laughs> well, as much as I know, it is reality. It is a fact. I was not there. I didn't see it happen, but I read about it. And I've heard about it many times. He's kind of famous for having done that. And it doesn't surprise me at all. A Cape Buffalo, for all of their reputation for absorbing a lot of lead from big, heavy cartridges and calibers, shooting 500-grain bullets and whatnot all, you can take one out with a heart shot, a good lung shot, with small calibers. Not recommended because they tend to take exception with that sort of treatment and come after you. So most guys shoot them with really big guns. I'm sure Mr. Weatherby was backed up by his professional hunter with a big bore, 45 or a 500 of some kind. But apparently he made a nice clean shot and did the job. But it would be fun to know what bullet he used. The 257 Weatherby, by the way, is... One of his smaller magnum, it's a belted magnum, but it's the shortened case, not the full length, like the 300 Weatherby magnum. And it's obviously a 25 caliber. So it's about two to 300 feet per second faster than the 25-06 Remington. So it's really screaming. And it was supposedly Roy's favorite. He just loved that. He took elk with it, I suppose, moose and just about everything else. And it was because he was always pushing hypervelocity for hydrostatic shock effect. And he was trying to prove all that stuff by shooting that really, really fast little bullet and getting some dramatic results. So it would be fun to have more of the story. If any of you know it, absolutely, uh, more details on it, 
write in, let us know what bullet he was using, at what distance did he shoot this uh, buffalo, what country was he in, and all the rest of it. It'd be fun to have that information. We'll read it on a subsequent one of our podcasts if we get it. But yeah, it's a fact, and uh, more power to you. I don't recommend that you try to duplicate his feet. <laughs> In most places, it would be illegal anyway because they have regulations on a minimal caliber for buffalo so that they don't have to keep wasting time and resources going out into the brush to retrieve trampled people and try to put them back together because those buffalo can really do the job. They are a dangerous animal. Uh, So it's generally recommended, and in most cases, most places, it is mandatory that you shoot at least a 375 H&H and larger. So... Yeah, Roy took a chance on it. Looks like he won. <laughs> now, here is one from Donnie, and Donnie asks, is there power loss when shooting a round out of a semi-auto compared to shooting the same round out of, say, a revolver or a bold action? Nothing appreciable. There's just such a tiny little hole that f- pushes that gas back to cycle the action, but the bullet's already accelerated, gets past that vent hole that brings the pressure back, and you just don't lose anything. You just can't put that much gas into that tiny little hole, regardless what the pressure of it is. There's just not much of it that escapes in that hole. And then the blowback actions, uh, pretty similar deal. That bullet is well on its way down and out the barrel before the bolt head moves enough to come back, and uh, that little bit of a delay is all you need to get the bullet out the barrel, so no significant loss in velocity whatsoever. Um, Revolver can lose a little bit out of the sides you know there's that gap between the cylinder and uh, the breech and you're gonna you'll see it when you shoot in dark you get the flames shooting out to the sides and of course you can get feel it on your hand if you make the mistake of having it up underneath there that hot gas comes out on your hand on a revolver <clears throat> so you're going to probably lose a little bit on that one a little more than you would on an autoloader I think I am not an expert on either one of those. I'm mostly a bold action and a single shot guy and a lever action guy. Um, but uh, that strikes me as what's what's happening. And I don't think you need to worry about losing sufficient or even significant energies and velocities. All right. Good one, Donnie. Jocko. Jocko asks, why would anyone want to shoot a bear unless it's an emergency? Well, why would anyone want to shoot a pheasant unless it's an emergency? <laughs> of course, I've never been attacked by it. Well, I take that back. I have been attacked by several pheasants. You grab a, a wounded one and they rip you pretty good with those spurs. But I, I get the gist of your question here, Jocko. You know, there are a lot of people who say, why would you shoot a this or why would you shoot a that? They're happy to shoot an elk or a deer or whatever it is they like to shoot. But then they think, because I don't want to shoot a cat, why should anybody else? And again, I have to go back to scientific management of our wildlife. Hunters have been hunting pretty much anything and everything that's been edible since day one, including insects. You know, there are tribes that take advantage of insects for protein, and that's hunting. And if you want to push the envelope, going asparagus hunting is hunting, (laughs) and asparagus isn't going to hurt you either. So why would anyone want to shoot a bear? Because they want to. They, they like the thrill of the hunt the same as someone else might like the thrill of a moose hunt. And they like the meat the same as someone might like the meat of a Canada goose or uh, impala or anything else. Once again, so long as it is not jeopardizing that animal population, I don't see why any of us should insist that others 
adhere to our idea of what is a suitable hunt or suitable game animal. I have shot several bears. Uh, It's not my favorite kind of hunting, but it's enjoyable. I especially like spot and stalk hunting in the Rocky Mountain West. And bear meat can be really, really good. I have friends who just, that is their favorite. But then I have other friends who their favorite meat is cougar. And I've had two or three times I've had cougar, and that is a delicious meat as well. So now there's plenty of reasons for people to hunt what they hunt. And again, as long as they're doing it legitimately, I see no problem with it. Now, this is from Rick. Why do you use muzzles or brakes on hard-kicking rifles? Oh, why don't you use muzzles or brakes? Why don't I personally? I don't like the noise. (laughs) I have hurt my hearing several times over the years from loud muzzle blasts, and it literally is painful for me to hear one. Even without a break, you put a break on and the volume goes up. Oh my gosh, it's painful. And it's injurious. It it will hurt your hearing. A single blast like that can damage the fine little inner hairs in your ear and ruin your hearing for the higher registers, which is the problem I have. I mean, I can, I love to bird watch and I'll be watching a beautiful little yellow warbler and I can see his lips moving, but I can't hear a thing. It's too high in the register. So that's why I don't use muzzle brakes. Now you could say, well, you dummy, why don't you put an earplug in before you shoot? And I have done that. I have used muzzle brakes and plugged in my ears. But then every once in a while, something will happen where you got a quick opportunity to like, there's a big elk, boom, and you shoot quickly. You don't have time to put it in and there goes my hearing. So rather than tempt myself, I try to stay away from muzzle brakes. I still have a few rifles that have muzzle brakes on them, but I'm very careful when I use the darn things. All right, good question. So now this is Thor, Thunder God, Thor's hammer. I wonder what he's going to hammer me with. Never in, I never understood the AI thing. Why bother with a 280 AI when you can just buy a much more common and more powerful 7mm Remington Magnum? Ah, good one. All right, let's explain AI. That stands for Ackley Improved. P.O. Ackley was a gunsmith back in the 50s and 60s. I knew his stuff. And he liked to fool around with wildcat cartridges. But he would take a standard cartridge and improve it by reshaping it so that it could hold more powder and be more reloadable. In other words, if you've got a cartridge like, say, a 220 Swift, which has quite a bit of taper to the sidewalls and then a long sloping shoulder, that case, when you fire it at high pressures, is going to flow the brass forward into the neck and you're going to have to trim the neck when you reload it so that it's not too long. And you've got the the wasted space, shall we say, where that taper comes in. You could open that taper up to a straight wall or close to straight. And then in a larger chamber, you would have more powder volume. You can also push the shoulder forward a little bit more and sharpen it, flatten it out like this to 40 degrees and you gain some more and you prevent some of that stretching. That was the idea behind the improved cartridges. They will add anywhere from 4% to perhaps as much as 10% powder capacity to a particular cartridge, depending on which one it is. And then if you're a hand loader, there's the attraction. You start with a 280 Remington. You open the chamber to an AI configuration. You fire the 280 case in it. 
and then it is fire formed to the new case size and you can add more powder to it the next time you hand load it and get increased velocity maybe shoot a heavier bullet just get certain advantages and the brass will probably last you one or two or three loadings more before the case neck stretches enough that you have to trim it makes life easier so that's why people get all excited about some of the AIs. The 280 AI is one of the better ones. It just seemed like, I don't know, it just improves it to the max almost. Although really you don't gain but about maybe 100 feet per second more velocity out of it over the standard. But for some reason, people have latched onto that and thought, this is the 280 that almost matches perfectly the 7 Rem Mag's ballistics. Actually, it comes within about 100 feet per second of the 7 Rem Mag. And some people don't like the idea of a Magnum. Just the very word Magnum sort of spooks them. Eh, it's going to kick more, it's going to burn more powder and waste, burn out my barrel sooner and all these things. So 280 AI sounds a lot more easy to handle. <laughs> But it is a legit cartridge, and right now it is much more popular than the standard 280 Remington. And I can understand why. It's You've got the same rifle, essentially. There's not a heck of a lot of difference, except for you're getting a little increase in speed, not having to buy a 7 Rem mag. And some people also don't like the 7 Rem mag because of the belt on the cartridge. I don't have a problem with it, but some people just think it's superfluous, and they don't need it, and they don't like it, and so they get a 280 AI. That's my take on it anyway. As a hand loader, I like the AIs. It just makes life a little easier when you're hand loading. Okay, Thor, that was a good question. I appreciate it, and thanks for not hitting me with your hammer. <laughs> um, I guess that's it. Yep, I ran out of questions, guys. So if I steered you wrong on any of this stuff, please write back in, and we'll put you on the next time. And uh, I'll take my lumps for giving you wrong information, but I think I got most of this stuff right. Hey, this is Ron Spomer. Thanks for watching and listening if you're on a podcast. Um, until next time, I invite you to subscribe to this YouTube channel and check our other YouTube channel out, Ron Spomer Outdoors, and go to our website, ronspomeroutdoors.com. It's always good to have you. Thanks for the support. Until next time, hunt honest and shoot straight. Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, a mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.